All right. Welcome to the Anvil Education Podcast. It is great to be here. It is great to kick off uh, this first edition of the Anvil Education Podcast. And and we're going to be running a little micro series over the course of the next few weeks called Anvil Origins. Um, and as we think about trying to tell the story of the Anvil Academy, we want to go back to the beginning and we want to talk a little bit about how Anvil began, uh, what were the seeds that began to take root and slowly begin to mature in this thing called the Anvil Academy. And so I'm here. My name is Andrew Culp. Um, I have the pleasure of being uh, the initial founder of Anvil, uh, but I'm also here with Ben Kukin. And Ben is uh, the founding full-time teacher of Anvil as well. And so together we're going to try to go back in history, enter a time machine and recapture some of the unique stories, uh, some of the distinctive moments and the things that crafted the DNA uh, of who we are. So, Ben, I'll let you introduce yourself real quick before we get into the story of Anvil. But uh, who are you and how'd you get here? Yeah, I'm, my name is Ben Kukin. I have been uh, in relationship with Andy for, gosh, almost probably like 15 years now. Dates back to my high school baseball coach is where we kind of first um, established a friendship. And that friendship... Um, quickly became into a mentorship relationship where Andy was just always someone that um, professionally, personally, I always just looked up to um, athletically as well from his baseball career, playing days at Messiah, and uh, then just yeah, quickly formed a professional relationship at Eastern Christian uh, Middle School. And um, then we talked about partnership down at Anvil. So that's that's kind of where we're at now. And that's that's the history and the context. And yeah, excited to, to talk more and unpack some of the story. Yeah, so as we talk about Anvil Origins, um, it doesn't start in Georgia. It doesn't start in coming Georgia. It doesn't start in 2016. It actually, uh, there, there's so much more to the story. And, and Ben, you touched on, on some of it. Um, yeah, I think my first introduction to you was through your family and through your older brother and sister. Um, you were just kind of the young kid running around the Cucan house, uh, but, but we were in... Bergen County, Passaic County, New Jersey, uh, at a school called Eastern Christian. I graduate from college. I moved back there. I'm teaching, but, you know, needed to, to make ends meet. I'm newly married, so I start JV coaching baseball. And I, I'm there. I'm coaching JV. Uh, you're on the varsity. You're playing catcher. And I think I'm reintroduced to you as you come, like, ambling out to practice one day in, like, ill-fitting catcher's gear. Um, but you come and you start working with the JV catchers. And, uh, yeah, we, we slowly start talking. Um, and wh where'd you go after that? Where'd you go after high school and after, after baseball kind of where, where did life take you? Yeah. So, I mean, my, the peak of my, uh, baseball career was my, my 12 year old all-star days. So you saw me on the decline of my baseball <laughs> career. Um, but after high school, I went to Eastern university, actually, um, played basketball. And I use that term loosely. I, I was, a had front row seats to every game from the bench perspective um, on the college basketball team at Eastern University, studied elementary and special education, primarily just because I figured that was the, the best way for the female to male ratio. Um, and so figured I could could find a future wife in one of those classes. Um, and, and so that was kind of the initial draw to elementary ed, but then fell in love with the, the art of teaching, the science of teaching. Um, and the, the potential for working with kids. And so that was what I went to school with and then came back and uh, swore to my parents, swore to myself, I would never go back to my alma mater to teach. And 
My first professional interview was back at my alma mater that I went to from K to 12 at Eastern Christian um, School with Sandy Baki um, in, in Midland Park, New Jersey. And that was the beginning of my professional career as an after school director and a gifted teaching program and a librarian. Those were kind of the initial phases of my big dreams of changing the world was with so, the Dewey Decimal so, System. So your, your, your MBA dreams are dashed by your four inch vertical. Uh, and so you, you, you fall back on, on education. Um, you know, my, my story, which we'll get into in other episodes, uh, I, I'm at this point, um, the Dean of Students of that same school and uh, had moved into the principalship and uh, I move into kind of my first hiring position and uh, receive a resume from uh, the resident media specialist librarian at the high school. And uh, here, here is Ben Pukin again. How, how, how was library work for you? How was, how was life as a 24 year old librarian? Man, life was slow. I'm not going to lie. It was a little bit slower than the pace I, I was accustomed to in college, um, the Midnight Wawa runs. But, um, I mean, Lori Genzink and um, Demaris Naganga, they, they brought the Dewey Decimal to life. And, and I remember the look of horror on their face when one of the first big projects I told them I wanted to do was to throw out all the books. Um, and, and poor Jean Huntington, she just she was crushed at, at my desire to kind of um, reinvigorate this into a 21st century uh, multimedia center instead of a um, industrial revolution book collecting station. So um, that was that was the beginning of and the end of my library career. <laughs> yeah, that's why they they were pushing your resume harder than you were uh, for the the sixth grade English teacher. But that's where you were hired. You you hired uh, I hired you into. Uh, was it fifth and sixth grade language arts? What what were you teaching? I forget. Uh, the hope was kind of fifth and sixth, but then it kind of evolved into more of a fifth grade reading, re reading, writing workshop model. And social studies was just kind of thrown in um, as an aside. And so probably spent about 10 minutes that year on social studies where the, <laughs> the primary push was the reading and writing workshop of fifth grade. That's right. We were in, we were deep into like the Columbia Teachers College. Uh, yeah. Re reading right. workshop model. And, and we thought we were cutting edge, but um, here's what I remember. I don't remember a whole lot except for the parents complaining about not having any history taught in, in fifth grade. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, I remember part of it was um, as a principal and, and you as a teacher, we oftentimes were assigned to, uh, to recess duty together. And, and we would be outside kind of watching guys play pickup basketball or watching uh, middle schoolers still playing on the swings um, and, or just kind of walking around. And it was on the blacktop of the outdoor playground uh, at Eastern Christian in New Jersey that we started having some different kinds of conversations uh, specifically about, uh, is, this, is this the model? And uh, I mean, I'll say this, mm. um, Eastern, is an awesome school and we still have so many friends there and have such respect for that community. And, and, you know, when, when Dick was there and Tom was leading, now Ruth is leading, I mean, just a phenomenal leadership team and a great school. Um, but something began to emerge in our conversations that was, that was beginning to wonder if, the, if there was a different type of model. What, what do you remember from that? 
Well, I think I remember coming coming into your office one day and tripping over um, a, a bunch of comic books that were kind of in this hidden file of Discovery Room. And I think I, I tripped over it and, and I began asking you about it. And you were telling me a little bit about your discovery program at, at Franklin Lakes and um, the way that you brought learning to life and the way that you kind of created experiences from the morning when kids were on the bus, because that was when like podcasts and um, really like multimedia was just hitting the scene in education where you were kind of using that in, in, in bringing the learning to life when they walked into the classroom. And so I just remember being drawn to that. Um, and beginning to do some research of, man, how can we do education differently, which was when I was first introduced to like Genius Hour, where it was like passion projects that kind of drive um, student learning. And um, and so I think it was the discovery program, honestly, learning about that, that really piqued my curiosity to learn, to think about, man, is there a different way than just traditional education to kind of engage learners and and bring some of this this learning alive um, in the classroom throughout the day. Yeah, that that was that was a really sweet season in, in Franklin Lakes and and uh, man, my, my boy Dominic Rotante, uh, Superintendent Bearsdorfer was there, Pat Pollock, um, and they were the first ones to really give me a blank slate to create an educational program, mm-hmm. and um, it was such a gift to be in kind of mid twenties, late twenties, and have. Uh, resources and to have space and have a team to be able to to build something from scratch and I think that was some of the thing that began to plant the seeds of hey we we can create our own thing there are ideas outside the model and so um, discovery room was was an awesome opportunity and I think yeah that that did begin to kind of plant some seeds for different models and so we find ourselves outside and and you're thinking about this from a curriculum side now I find myself in the principal seat and I'm having, you know, boys primarily sent to my office and I'm having to do discipline for them. And uh, what I'm finding is so much of the stuff that, that I'm doing discipline for um, are, are not this deep seated, hard hearted, malicious, you know, darkness in these boys. It was a, a feeling of disengagement from the classroom, the model that we were teaching in, which was a fantastic school model, um, wasn't resonating with a certain group of boys. And so we began saying, man, I, I feel like I'm doing discipline in ways that I don't even believe in necessarily for this group of boys. And they started to see themselves perhaps as, as unacademic or not smart. And that's really where you're thinking about it from the curriculum side. I'm thinking about it from the character and organizational side. And we start kind of brainstorming, what if we could create a learning environment and a community and a curriculum and a pathway and an experience that was not suppressing some of these emerging manhood desires and, and some of these emerging manhood, like they were trying, trying out, you know, trying to build some muscle memory into what manhood looked like. We're like, what if rather than suppress it, what if we created a conduit to actually allow them to express it and to try it out, knowing that it's going to be something that they fumble through, but, but we could have some guides to it. And so I remember those are the first conversations where like you, you became this uh, in some ways kind of collaborative and, and creative partner from the very beginning, where the thing I've always loved about you is, is that you're not afraid to dream and to think big and to take risks. And, 
finding someone who for, for 25 minutes on recess duty twice a week, we could, we could go and we could just start dreaming big um, was a gift during, mm. during that season. And so soon. Yeah. Felt, I think even, sorry. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think like even just going back to the recess, like I think so much of what you just said, it, we were watching the athletes that I'd be coaching after school and you'd be asking me like, Hey, are that you seeing stuff after school with discipline and, and me seeing them for like, no, they're brave. They're courageous. They're innovative and in implementing like new moves onto the basketball court and the soccer field. Um, and then even just like the academic approach, I remember you sent me an article when underdogs break the rules because our basketball team hadn't won a game in like three years, I think. And so you sent a, an article about a full court press to try to like disrupt the norm of athletics when you have an um, underskilled team. And so I remember beginning to implement that and, and just thinking um, of, man, if we can do this in the athletic field, I wonder if we can do this in the educational classroom. And um, all of that contributed to kind of this, these seeds that were being planted. I remember you talked about starting your own school and I was so novice professionally at that time. Like I couldn't even imagine what that would all entail. And so that was kind of like a, that was like a little bit too big of like a uh, Miss Frizzle dream of the magic school bus where I was like, okay, bro, like keep, get back on your magic school bus, take your little pet iguana and go back to your office. Um, but, but then, yeah, as things began to move, it was like, wow, like you, you always fostered and encouraged um, taking risks in the classroom. And I think that always felt like a safe place to fail where I knew that you were going to challenge me with excellence professionally, um, but also allow me to put kind of my own fingerprint on the classroom and take risks to engage in different ways and in innovative ways. And I always appreciated that about you. And that's still the truth today that just your leadership, your ability to um, kind of instill a, a safe space to dream and to fail is, is such a beautiful part of your leadership that I, that I really appreciate. Well, thank you, man. I, I appreciate that. that. That idea of taking risks is, I think, something that um, isn't always um, the, the the kind of core attribute of some teachers that, that we that we saw. And so to find that was special. I mean, but but we did take some risks. I, I, do I remember correctly? Was was there a, a time where, where you were in kind of spandex dangling as Spider-Man or were you uh, in, in an assembly we did? It was was there something like about that? <laughs> yeah, I, that was that was kind. Of, that must have been my first year. That was my first year um, as a fifth grade teacher, um, willing to do whatever I needed to to kind of prove myself um, professionally. And and you had approached a, a collection of like five teachers that you wanted to, them to be involved in this introductory assembly, this kickoff chapel. Um, and, and I agreed to it before I knew what it entailed. And then, um, the next day in my teacher box, there was a Superman costume, um, and, and you, with a script of what the assembly was going to entail. And so, um, before I knew it, I was, I was hiding in the bottom of the kitchen, um, waiting for my time to come out as Superman. I had my 30 seconds of fame. And then uh, my fame was quickly drowned out by a Catwoman costume coming in on a, a motorized Vespa um, coming through the hallways. And, and you were in your, your Catwoman costume, and that was, that was our kickoff. Still have no idea what the connection was to any type of learning, any type of professional development. 
Um, but I'm pretty sure some kids were scared, some were confused, and very, very few left inspired that year. But um, we pulled it off anyway. No, not true. I think everyone was inspired. Everyone was inspired. The, the, the thing was, sometimes sometimes genius happens in the last minute. And so there was this this vision for the assembly where it was like, even you could be a superhero through service. It was something like that, right? It was like, everybody can be a superhero. Um, that was the theme. That was the takeaway. Um, but I, I was going to be Batman. You were Superman. I think Naomi was Wonder Woman. Mark Spoolstrom maybe was Spider-Man. I don't know. But <laughs> but uh, it was it was in October. And I remember we were doing it. I think it was like October 30th is when we were doing it. And so I figured like, oh, man, I'll be able to get a I'll be able to get a Batman costume easy. I just go to any store. Well, I go the night before and and every Batman costume is sold out and I'm starting to freak out like I need a costume. Everybody else had costumes. I can't show up in like, you know, like the kid pajamas with a Batman logo. And so I finally find a costume, but it's in Spencer's gifts. And so I'm in Spencer's gifts. And all I could find is uh, a woman, like a, a bat girl unitard. Uh, it was right next to the adult toy sex. It was just like, I was like, what am I doing here? But I get, I get this thing and it was so stretchy that it actually fit. And so I come riding in on this, on this, this Vespa. Uh, and man, it was, it was the, it was the pinnacle of my professional career. Like everyone remembers it. I'm sure. Um, oh my God. Yeah. Did, did that costume double as a um, as bike gear? Because you used to bike every day in some pretty tight spandex too, but I wasn't <laughs> yeah, sure if those were the cutoff on the bottom of Catwoman or if those were actual biker spandex you chose to wear. No, well, you know, I was biking to school. This is when we had a morning workout. Uh, it, it was um, yeah. Sean T. We were doing it in Sean Sandy. T. It was Sean T. 5.30 a.m. workout. You know, you were engaged, about to get married. You were trying to get the LGN body. And so I was like, I'm going to help you out. And so I would ride my bike to school and you'd be there just like pushing it. And you had all the motivation in the world because your honeymoon was coming up. Um, right. And I, I'm, I'm there and yeah, wearing my spandex to ride the bike to school in the pitch, pitch black of the New Jersey roads. So talk about taking risks. We took some risks, but they, they, uh, they always paid off. Well, Okay, so so speaking of taking risks, uh, I moved down to Georgia. Um, this dream is emerging, but uh, not really crystallized yet. I take another job as as a head of school down here for a non traditional school, and so my eyes kind of get opened to a different model of schooling. You're still up in Jersey, but we keep talking, and, and on breaks I'd come home and we'd meet up for morning breakfast at Andy's Corner. We'd have some, uh, you know, some Jersey pork roll. On, on, a, on a Kaiser roll and just talk about life and what was going on. Um, and uh, I think I, I made the invitation sitting at Andy's Corner for you to come down and check out what was happening in the Atlanta area. Um, how did that sit with you when, when I was like, hey, would you ever consider this? Yeah, and I think like when you first dropped that, I mean, I, I had never even thought of leaving the the safety of New Jersey. I didn't even I didn't even know since I didn't teach much social studies. I didn't know that there were other states outside of New Jersey. <laughs> um, and, and so um, when yeah, I, I didn't even know. I thought Georgia was in Europe, to be honest. Um, and so didn't know how it was gonna work. But yeah, when we talked, I got super excited. I remember I 
I got so excited. I even texted my sister um, just how excited but nervous I was about if this offer would really follow through. And, and instead of sending it to my sister, I actually sent it to you. It was one of those things where you, <laughs> you text the person you're thinking about when you were trying to text about the person you were thinking about. And so that, that created um, just an awkward, but I, I, but I think now like looking back on your end, I mean, the, the risk uh, for you to kind of step into this and then to invite another head of household man to come down and partner, I'm sure there was some trepidation there on your part, which I totally understand now. Um, but I was, I mean, at that point, we were in a personal season where the, the upside potential of working with you and being a part of a startup was super exciting. And um, just professionally, I was ready for kind of the next thing. And so I was kind of wrestling with, do I go into full-time ministry? I was doing some some ministry work. I was doing some coaching work. So I, I was even considering the path of full-time coaching. But then, as you know, like with the need to provide financially, I was also thinking administration. And so the thought of Anvil was kind of a combo package of all three of these passions that I had at the time. And so um, I was excited to explore the the potential for sure to come down and visit. Well, uh, I mean, you, you coming down, it was it was one of these things where I would talk to Katie, you know, my wife about it. And it was one of these things where it was like, man, if, if, if Ben could be here, this could be awesome, but there's no way it would ever work. And so then when I get the weird text that you had sent to your sister, but really sent to me, you know, I show it to Katie and I'm like, wait, I, th I think he actually might come. Like he's, he's going to come and like, check it out. And so, uh, man, we, we try to get the barn clean. We try to get the program. I mean, we're, we're like a half a year into the program at this point. Right. And, and my good friend, uh, Doug Eskew is there kind of helping us out, getting things off the ground. But, you know, we try to get the stage set. Um, but we're in coming Georgia, you know, we're, so we're about, you know, 45 minutes north of Atlanta. We're out in the country. There's horse farms around, you know, we're up in a barn, a dirty barn. There's, there's mice and snakes and stuff all around. Right. And so I'm like, oh man, how's he going to feel about this? Here comes the guy, you know, he went to school in Philly. He's kind of lived in suburban Metro New York. How's he going to feel about this? And so, you know, we go pick him up from the airport, come. And uh, I remember you come in to, I think we're doing a forge night and uh, you, you roll in like you had just robbed the NF swag store. You came, you came with like the hoodie and with the hat. Um, and I was like, oh man, how's he going to feel about these people who are listening to to like Billy Ray Cyrus and, and well, at the time, you know, country, country music is going. And so like, uh, what, what were your impressions when you came down here and I had talked it up and then you came and you saw what it actually was. What was that like for you? Dude, I, I just remember, yeah, like, so literally, I think that, that the week that we had come down, I mean, we had moved into inner city Patterson. And so we had been in the city for, for several years at this point, um, in the city, like you have to, you have to wake up about 4 a.m. to not work the farm, but to to work your parking space. And so you had to, to shovel out your own parking space and then find a way to claim your parking space with trash cans or any type of household furniture. And there would be fist fights if someone took your, your parking space. And so this was kind of the context of what I was coming out of. Um, and then I, I pull up from the airport and I remember Judah comes running up to me, um, completely barefoot, like running on rocks. Uh, that confused me. There's gardens. There's, I hear chickens in the background. I, I swear to you, Katie was hanging up laundry and she was singing. And I, I swear <laughs> she was singing um, Cinderella. Like, I, I promise you, that was the visual. Um, and then Carolyn came up and offered me a bowl of chili and cornbread. 
And that was that was kind of the introduction. But I, I think everything that I had known about you kind of came alive in that Forbes night presentation where it was outside the box thinking, passion for discipleship, passion for innovative teaching and learning. And the space was set up for that. And so I just remember there being just an underlying excitement around, man, this this is really exciting. And then to see the excitement of <clears throat> parents who were um, hanging on your every word and just so ex- I couldn't believe that people were actually coming to a dude's barn in the middle of a, a town called coming. Um, and so was super was super excited just about the the community and the potential um, of of Anvil. So what were the conversations like uh, with you and your wife as you went home and 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 she's like, you're actually considering this like you really like this is something that we might actually do. What, what was what was the drive back to the to the airport and the flight home? What was that like and what did you all talk about? Man, that's that's a great question. I think there was just so much excitement, honestly. Um, she probably felt very nervous to try to squelch any of my excitement. Cause I think for, for me, my mind was made up. You could have offered me anything that night and I probably would have accepted it. But I think just making sure that, um, the logistics were, were tied in place. I mean, she was pregnant at that point with our third gram and who was due in May. And so just kind of thinking through, um, just location where we want to raise our children, schooling, friends, family, just navigating all of that was a part of the conversation. But I think above all was just the the professional excitement around working with you again professionally and walking with you personally and just being a part of something, um, even if it was completely out of my um, geographical element. Um, I was I was willing to to put on some cowboy boots if it meant working with you professionally and walking with your family personally. So I think that was kind of the big takeaway from that. Dude, you have never worn a pair of cowboy boots in your life. Let's just let, let's let's be honest. Oh, um, well, and we'll and we'll end with this because I think this is this is kind of the end of the season. But like, but you you sign a contract to come down, and you're like, yeah, I'm coming down. Uh, but, but in that first year, I mean, you talked about providing for your family and you talked about, you know, maybe one day getting to that level of administration and kind of leadership, but, but the first year, I mean, do you remember the terms of your first year contract? I do. Yeah. It was, to be honest, it was more, it was more than I was making, um, in the grind of working multiple jobs, coaching every season, working a summer camp, driving Uber at night. And so, I mean, for you, it may have seemed small because you've been making like five figures for a long time. Um, but but for me, it was it was seeing what it, it broke down to annually and monthly. Like I was I was ecstatic um, just because of what we were coming out of and, and the grind that we were doing to get there. And so it was a level I felt extremely grateful for and humbled by. Um, and even more than the paycheck, just the trust in me professionally and personally. Um, to be a part of something that we had been discussing for years um, was an honor. And, and honestly, it would, I mean, any, any terms would have paled in comparison to the trust um, that you instilled in me just as a, as a co-laborer for what you were trying to accomplish. Dude, I, I, I appreciate that. But here's, here's something that I think we, we learn is, is that we look back at history through some some rose colored glasses. Uh, cause what I remember is, is that, 
you know, there was a baseline that we could offer you, but we couldn't pay the full salary. So we had to go out and find support and we had to find almost a missionary model in that first year uh, to be able to supplement your salary, to be able to make ends meet uh, for you and for the school. And so um, what always stood out to me was that idea of believing in something so clearly and, and following it with such passion uh, that there would be a trust the Lord would provide for everything uh, that was needed. And so uh, we had five or six families who stepped up and said, I believe in this and I believe in you, Ben, and we're going to actually supplement your salary to make sure that those ends meet for the first year or two before yeah. we could have enough students to really be able to pay both of us full time. And uh, I look back at that and there was just this core community. You know, we call them now the Fellowship of the Hammer. Uh, back then they were just lifesavers yeah. and they were keeping us afloat uh, to make sure that we could pay two, two men uh, trying to lead families, trying to run something out of a barn, but for the sake of, of helping boys journey from, from boyhood into manhood and, and do this work of forging men. And so uh, that's where we're going to pick up when we, when we continue the story next time. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, what actually began to emerge in the barn. And we're going to talk to some students and some other people involved. Uh, but just want to say thank you for coming on. Thank you for being a part of this and co-hosting this as, as we move forward. Uh, and with this as the foundation, um, we'll kind of think a little bit more about how the Lord began this little uh, community called the Anvil Academy uh, in Metro Atlanta. So, Ben, until next time, thanks so much. All right, man. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to, to chatting more. All right. Come up with a jingle for the next podcast episode. I want to I want to uh, <laughs> something I, iconic. All right. I got you. A little All spoken right. word. <laughs> All right, man. Peace out. All right, later.